0: Beyond the headlines and deeper than the news cycle, this is Cricket Inside the Story with Knuckle Pandey. A 30 year old man, born in Karachi and raised in Barnsley, sits before a group of MPs and tells them the story of his professional life.
1: It's so easy to look at the, yeah, but they're not interested. Oh. Actually, is the game doing enough? Are the leaders within the game doing enough? Um, do I believe I lost my career to racism? Yes, I do.
0: In those two hours, English cricket changes. But how much, how fast, and for how long? Azim Rafiq's testimony was not just about Azim Rafiq. It was about testing the whole national game's commitment to combating racism and discrimination. Tom Brown is a PhD researcher at Birmingham City University whose research revealed South Asian players and coaches were disproportionately blocked from progression in professional cricket. He is also a performance coach at Warwickshire and founder of the South Asian Cricket Association. Tom, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And Dr Thomas Fletcher is a sociologist and reader at Leeds Beckett University who has extensively studied anti-South Asian discrimination in English cricket, including in 2014 authoring a major report commissioned by and delivered to the ECB. The Fletcher report was cited in Azim Rafiq's testimony and Rafiq's lawyer, Asma Iqbal, described it as a key part of building their case. Thomas, thank you very much for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. On Friday, the 26th of November, just a few days ago as we record, the ECB and other key stakeholders published a 12-point anti-racism plan, and it's that plan for how to move the game forward that we'll be discussing today. But we do need to start before then, and and Tom Brown, will start with you on the South Asian Action Plan, which was published a few years ago. Given your research. Did did the South Asian Action Plan, in your view, set the right objectives? It's worth noting at this stage, the plan at that time did not mention racism, anti-discrimination or anti-racism once in its many, many pages and doesn't, as far as I'm aware, set any serious targets for professional representation.
2: Yeah. And I think that last point you made was the only thing I can really comment on with the South Asian Action Plan Tom Fletcher will be able to talk more from a a grassroots and a sociology perspective around engaging communities, etc. My research specifically looked into the elite talent pathways. And from that analysis, which, to be fair, was done after the South Asian Action Plan was published, we can see that the the decline in professional representation uh, for the British South Asian community at the professional game clearly is somewhere within the talent pathway system they are the representation for british south asian players is pretty healthy within the talent pathways it's around 20 percent nationally and from that it drops down to five percent at the professional game so what we need to identify is a lot of plans a lot of strategies are always emphasized around the grassroots levels and, and as you allude to you usually don't have too many hard metrics to follow or targets to uh, to hit Whereas, again, as you said, the, the South Asian Action Plan, I think of the 120 odd pages in it, only had four or five dedicated to the professional game. Uh, and, and they weren't particularly stringent in how they approached tackling the issue. But having said that, now we know there's an issue in the game. And I think we should be judged on, on how we, from now, go forwards and the impact we make from now.
0: Let's get into the anti racism plan. The first section, the ECB headlined, Understanding and Educating more. And the first point that is mentioned is adoption within three months of a standardized approach to reporting, investigating, responding to complaints, allegations, and whistleblowing. Start with you, Thomas Fletcher. The current system is that you approach your, your county, which doesn't seem to work because then you're often complaining to the same people who have been running the club that you're complaining about. But what, in your view, is is the best way? We've heard about potential independent commissions. We've heard about potential external regulators. Could the ECB themselves be doing more at a a central level?
1: It's a tough one, isn't it? Because you you talk about that kind of objectivity, and I don't think it certainly can't rest with the counties. The counties have shown that they can't necessarily be trusted in in that respect. Can the ECB be trusted in the same way? I think the ECB has to lead it. It has to set the parameters for it. I'm relatively indifferent about who should then oversee it. I think that what has to be clear is that whatever mandates come down, that it is dealt with. As we say, consistently that there's nothing left open to interpretation. So on that basis, it would seem to make sense that all complaints go through one place, because then you know who the contact is nationally, as opposed to do you know what? That's the contact at Yorkshire. They're an independent person, but nevertheless, that wouldn't fill me with confidence. So I think there needs to be an independent line or email address, whatever it is, but that that has teeth. Ultimately, I think what matters is that these organizations can actually do something and that they have a voice and that they're not just a drop your ticket here kind of scenario where actually you have no faith that if you do drop your ticket there, that actually anything is going to happen with it. So I think the reporting from their perspective becomes really important. Do they report it to the ECB? Do they then report it to the county for the county to then ignore it? I'm not entirely sure, but... what I would say is it absolutely cannot be left to the counties to to oversee this for themselves.
0: And in terms of a, an independent body that has teeth, the ECB have set up the Independent Commission for Equity in Cricket, which is currently receiving submissions, anonymous submissions from players and people who have been involved in, in cricket and is apparently receiving a number of, of submissions. I don't know if either of you know how well-funded that body is and indeed what powers it will ultimately Ultimately, have is it just going to be another case of this is another independent body that people can share their trauma with that ultimately doesn't doesn't go anywhere.
1: My anxiety about the independent commission is that it will become NACL as you've just described. It's just a repository for people to vent, and that someone somewhere will collate the responses and they will produce a spreadsheet that said, you know what, we had twelve hundred people that that wrote in, nine hundred of them talked about this and. 200 of them talked about that but actually you know what next is this commission there to make recommendations so based on these 1200 responses that we've had these are the overarching stories that we're receiving and therefore based on the evidence this is what we need to do. do you know I was tempted to fill out the questionnaire on the website to see what questions they actually ask whether it is just there as a kind of open talk to us about your experiences or whether it is a have you experienced discrimination yes or no you know that kind of thing But I think that sense of having teeth, at the minute I think that that commission is there just to be a repository. I don't think that the next stage is probably open yet and will probably be based on how many responses they get and how big the problem is perceived to be.
0: How dismaying was it, or what was your your reaction to hearing senior figures at the ECB and senior figures at Yorkshire saying that they hadn't read the report? i ask
2: you, Mr Hunt, what does the Fletcher report mean to you? It doesn't. It
1: doesn't, yeah. i And not surprised at all, mainly because I think this is a part of a failing on my behalf, to be brutally honest with you, thinking, well, actually, that anyone would care enough about the work to publicize it. I think this this is a real lesson. And you know, Tom's much better at this than me. It's a real lesson to academics, actually, about actually publicizing their work and saying to people, do you know what, we found something really useful and you should do something with it. I think that that what has happened here is that. You know, we've done a piece of work which was commissioned by a particular person at a particular level of an organisation. The work was then done and sent back to that person who's read it and implemented whatever they needed to do. They then haven't gone, do you know what? My responsibility within this organisation is to share it more widely. So I don't think it's a failing necessarily of these other organisations that they weren't aware of it necessarily at that time. I think it's a failure that they didn't know now, because if someone had pulled me in front of a parliamentary inquiry and said... uh, you're gonna to have to talk about racism. My first inclination would be to say, What do we know? And neither organization had clearly done their homework in this in that respect. But was I surprised that prior to the parliamentary inquiry they didn't know about it? No. Because I think the work was set up and was delivered to a particular level of an organization. And I think it was that, that was where it was always meant to be.
0: If the Fletcher report was ignored, what hope do we have that this time will be different? Because thanks to Azim Rafiq and his supporters in the media, cricket can no longer claim ignorance. Tom Brown.
2: The only thing we have on our side this time is that the public are aware of things. So when Tom wrote that report back in 2014, there wasn't much hype around it. No one knew about anything going on. You do call out mistakes. You're presenting it to the people who have made those mistakes. And it's up to them whether they want to publicise if they've made those mistakes or not. So you end up with that kind of turkeys voting for Christmas kind of scenario. However, this time, I think there's much more public outcry. And we now have data, real hardline data from Tom's work, from sort of the grassroots level all the way up to my work with the profession, at the professional level, where we say, well, we can actually hold you accountable that where we are where we are right now, we can measure how much progress
0: we, we, we make moving forward. The second section is removing barriers in, in talent pathways and specifically about the professional game, which there's been a lot of emphasis on, on grassroots cricket with organizations like Chance to Shine and, and other organizations who do fantastic work and the Lord's Taverners. But the as your research identifies, and I think people are now aware of, the blockage is not at the recreational or even at the counter youth group level, it's at professional level. You've founded the South Asian Cricket Association, which has some what seem like ambitious targets to increase the representation of the professional Level, But reading through your, your targets, actually based on the player pool, they, these are eminently achievable targets. You just want to run through the aims of the South Asian Cricket Association and how you're going to meet them.
2: We're basically applying a three-pronged approach to, to try to tackle the problem. One, where we're trying to help players. And, and this bit i will talk about now is about the male game. We have something different for the female game. But with the, the male uh, game, we're looking at tackling players and giving players an opportunity to train and perform at a sort of semi-professional level and compete to showcase their skills still and gain a, a, an academy, sorry, a county contract later down the line. And additionally, the second prong is that we're working with coaches to get qualified and experienced. There's There are some seriously high profile coaches out there that get turned away for jobs. Or some of the reasons when you go through some of the qualitative work we're doing now that they didn't get given jobs are, are nothing short of shambolic really. I can't go into too much detail because I might give away some people but uh, and we haven't published it yet. Uh, the third prong is to continue the research. So I think it would be naive of us to say, we've done the research, we know everything, um, we've got a silver bullet, here we go. Off we go. We need to continue research projects into funding exactly how do we create equitable talent development and talent ID systems that work and that are effective. And our targets are, I've realised though, when we wrote the plans we were aiming to start in September this year, we're going to start in January. So we're going to have to move the dates one year back to 2025 and 2028. But effectively, we were, we're not giving positive discrimination of outcome and saying counties must have a quota to hit of players to sign because there's there's an infinite amount of reasons why that would be a, a bad way to go. But what we are saying, here's, a, here's an opportunity for a marginalized group to achieve their their ambitions. And we've aimed to disband within six years. So it's a really short to medium-term solution whilst the long-term changes that again clearly needs are being undertaken. I personally think if we're going to be changing what we're doing, it's not going to happen in 2022 or 2023. We're looking sort of four or five years down the line before we make any real impact on the current system or, or sustainable impact on the current system. If the targets are hit before six years, we'll disband before six years. It's a real, we're here to maximize that opportunity and to to really fast track the development
0: of these players. Those figures, just to put some numbers on it, the first target is to grow the figure from 5% of current professional cricketers in England and Wales being South Asian to 8%, which is a 60% increase and 15% by now 2028, which is tripling in just over six years and doubling coaching representation in that time, from 5% to 10%. Looking at your research, that is eminently achievable based on the, I suppose, demographic split uh, of the country as a whole and of cricket below the professional level at, at youth and grassroots level. You mentioned coaches there, and there are an, a few points in the anti-racism plan. Point three about equality, diversity, and inclusion training, and then player and coach education that, that are that are mentioned. The The Fletcher Report Thomas Fletcher recommended training and education back in in 2014. The South Asian Action Plan asked all county academy directors to have unconscious bias training. But we heard the other day Ashley Giles, a very senior figure in English men's cricket, saying that he'd never in his career had any impactful training, including while as a senior executive. What does effective training on this look like? Because it doesn't seem like we've had any at this stage.
1: The training is important,
0: just to reiterate that,
1: because people would say, well, you know, what right, for instance, do Tom and I have to be talking about British South Asians and cricket? Because clearly neither of us are from a South Asian background. So how do we possibly understand what it is like to be from a South Asian background or indeed from a black background or any other background other than our own, which is privileged in a variety of different ways, You know, what right do we have? Now, for me, the key to this is to say you don't have to be, for instance, South Asian to be a good coach for kids of a South Asian background. In some ways, it helps. It does help. And the evidence suggests that, you know, young South Asian kids would like more South Asian coaches. But what does matter unequivocally is that you have the ability to empathize and that you understand you know what it you know to a degree what it is like to come from that background or you understand why at particular times of the year these young kids might be missing from a training session or why this might be happening or why that might be happening so when we talk about the training it's not just about being able to you know unconscious bias training is kind of you know step one but there's a much more nuanced and granular way of training to, to for coaches to really understand what it is like not to be them you know, not to be themselves because otherwise they base all of their experiences on how do I recruit people who play the way that I want them to play? It's like, well, all you're going to do is just keep recruiting people that look like you and have come from your background. What they have to understand is that there is a plethora of experiences, of ways of doing it, of ways of doing, ways of being, and ways of playing. And they have to be able to get the best out of those players that don't necessarily, you know, come from their own background. What the training looks like to me is one that kind of embraces difference and, and, and is sensitive to, you know, the diversity of people that play cricket, as opposed to say, you know what, that's the way I did it and it worked for me. So that's the way I'm going to do it. And, you know, and I'm going to coach these kids to basically be a replication of me. And I mean, you know, Tom, I don't know if you went through county systems as a youngster, for instance, but the number of times my Yorkshire coaches told me that I needed to change my action this way, or I needed to do this this way. And it's just absolutely overwhelming. And I came through, through a system that was very, it was very white, you know, so the way I bowled and battered, it was the kind of classic white British way of doing it. And yet they were still tinkering. If I'd come from the back streets of Bradford, and I was used to playing, you know, with, in front of a bin with a, with, with a piece of wood, and that's the way we played, playing tape ball in the streets and then suddenly they turn up to county trial, the way of doing things is completely different. And if your way is just to change the way they've done it to the way that you think it should be, then that, that you're destined to fail those young, those young
2: people. Yeah, exactly. And our research is pointing out that that's exactly kind of what's happening at the minute, that we're judging players based on our notions of what performance should look like instead of creating environments built around them. And if you ask any academy or pathway coach they they will say they differentiate and, and they probably do to a certain extent but it's kind of within the structures of what we already do not to completely design a program around a different individual and, and that example you gave at the end there was a I can't name but there was a really powerful example within one of my studies where a lad went from playing parks cricket black trainers turn up whenever you like bowl till the sun goes down and he was incredibly successful in that environment and then we put him in an environment where I say we, uh, um, you know, the, the county set up, put him in an environment where he was had his diet planned. He had to be here at certain times. He had to conform to certain norms, and and ultimately, he talked about how he really struggled through that transition. And then he was not only did he struggle through; he was judged on how well he fit into that system. And just to go back to unconscious bias training. Yes, it's probably the first step. But my problem with any type of CPD or coach development program or plan is that we usually do kind of like it gets described as tick boxing because we'll do one workshop or one you know, hour and a half session. And maybe for that, I always sort of um, compare it to have you ever been on a speed awareness course. And after you've been on that speed awareness course for three weeks, you drive like an absolute saint because you're aware of everything that happens. You know, oh, wow, this is big. But then after a while, you probably just fall back into what's normal. So if the entire sort of culture and way we do things isn't really changed and challenged, then an unconscious bias course, in theory, to work would need to happen every month, and people would eventually get fed up of it, not be interested, and it would be it wouldn't be effective at all. Not that it's being particularly effective right now, anyway. There, there are hundreds of cultural norms, and again, I find it very ironic sometimes that you know, as Tom said, I'm a white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, middle-class male, and I and I'm trying to talk about diversity and inclusion what you know what right do i have but then it's this loads of different things around from different cultures around things like eye contact how you respect elders how you talk to elders compared that are completely different from westernized kids or backgrounds or cultures compared to more collectivist and asian or aborigine cultures and Effectively, if 95% of the coaching demographic are from one culture, then there's no surprise that 95% of the playing demographic are from that culture as well.
0: We touched on the ideas of of, of white privilege and the South Asian Action Plan, for example, and indeed the anti-racism plan doesn't actually specifically mention white privilege. I note that the, the Fletcher report does mention it as a factor in blocking progression up through the through the pathway, there is a section in the anti-racism plan that talks about addressing dressing room culture, which obviously plays a major role in the life of a professional cricketer or somebody coming into an environment from an an academy. Describe, Thomas Fletcher, for those of you, for those who, who might not quite understand or have heard this term and aren't quite sure what it means, what that role of white privilege looks like in terms of blocking someone's pathway into cricket and through cricket.
1: I think white privilege manifests itself in lots of different ways within a sporting setting. The primary example of white privilege, I guess, in the way that, you know, both Tom and I have discussed already is that, you know, when you turn up to a trial or you turn up to a coaching session, that the vast majority of people who are there are also white and your coach is white and the other kids are white. And... Therefore, your way of doing things, so the kind of white way of doing things is normalized. And this normalization is really key here because the kind of normalized practices of being, the normalized ways of talking, the normalized things to eat, the normalized TV shows that people are watching and talking about, the normalized, you know, logo on your back, you know, it's a Grey nickels or it's a something else. And then you suddenly turn up as a young Asian lad and you've not got a Grey nickels, You've got a brand, you know, originating from the subcontinent. That is what privilege looks like. That through every single kind of layer of this system, you are faced with people who look like you. You are faced with ways of doing which are normal to your way of doing. The timing in which things take place is convenient for you because it's convenient for the coaches who are also white. You know, having matches at particular times of day that suit you because you're not going to be attending that particular religious festival or, you know, an acknowledgement around... You know, there's so many, manifest The, the kind of normalisation, or I should say the, the abnormalisation, Things like fasting, you know, the amount of people that I've played cricket, you know, with and against who kind of have to justify a kind of dip in performance because they're dehydrated or, you know, or this, that and the other. And people just look at them like they are utter aliens. You know, what in the world are you doing that for? How ridiculous when you've got a match on a Saturday. That is what privilege looks like. Never having to question your right to be or your way of doing things. I'm trying to remember a first name, but a lady called McIntosh, you know, identified what she referred to as the white privilege knapsack. And she said, white privilege is like something that you carry around on your back. There's a series of resources that are in your backpack and you just carry them around and you just deploy them when you need to. It may well be, like I say, forms of humor, diet, sensitivities. You just carry them around and they're normalized. And ethnically diverse groups don't have those same barrel of resources that they carry around on their backs. Unfortunately, they carry around bricks instead that make their journey that much harder.
0: I think it's that point about not having to think about these things and never having to confront them that is worth bearing in mind that nobody is saying that because you come from, let's say, a white private school background, and we will come on to Tom, Tom Brown, some of your research about, about that element of how uniform the English professional playing court is. Nobody's saying that you won't have professional challenges or that you won't have to fit into another playing style or whatever it might be, or you won't go through dips in form. But you're doing that from a much higher starting point. I've heard it described as starting on life's lowest difficulty level. If you're a video gamer, then that that might resonate with you. But it's that very unconscious and that very assumed way that things will be a certain way, and that you won't have to change, particularly.
2: Can I just add? Can I just
0: add something? To that?
2: Uh, essentially, I think you know you're right, and Tom Fletcher is m-
0: far more qualified than
2: I am in this area as well. So I don't want to go against anything particularly he said. I just think there's it, it's essentially what you're saying there as well. It's that you, you don't have to work harder to fit in, and you know, or you don't even have to do anything consciously to fit in. The one thing I will say is that language is so tricky around this subject because Tom and I live day-to-day. You know, Our day-to-day job is to sit by our laptops and research and read up on these things and gain as much knowledge as we can. So we challenge each other, challenge the community, and we're always talking about these sort of subjects. However, sometimes we use language. So the, the, the common thing is that we have to reach out to people who aren't doing this and the only time they'll see this language is in a snapshot on twitter or on something on, online where they see white privilege and the initial response is always oh i'm not privileged you know i come from a working class background i don't have this blah, blah blah and i guess it's trying to find language that is impactful to make a difference but not so confrontational that you've lost the audience before you even started and i guess it's recognizing that not everyone. And actually, I'll be really open and honest about how I started with my PhD. My initial search was to actually look into, from a really good intention, but to look into what Asian players were doing wrong in the system. They're not getting through what are Asian players doing wrong. And with the best intention, what's what's going on there? And it wasn't until I went like eight, nine months into it that I started to go, well, there's a couple of things, but there's nothing that equates to this drop-off. And then you turn the mirror on ourselves as a, Pathway and go well. Actually, there's lots of things we're doing wrong. But that was through doing a not you know nine months into a full time PhD that we've got to accept that not everyone's going to have to go through this, and we need ways of communicating with people that aren't confrontational but are impactful. So that's my view. Yeah,
1: that's really in, it's really interesting. I think your, your metaphor, by the way, of entering a video game and kind of starting off and saying what well, you know what's your difficulty level. And most people, to start with, click on easy, and I suppose that is the yeah, that's why privilege is there.
0: It? <laughs> it's not an original analogy, but I think it it does it does work. There is a section in the in the anti racism plan that talks about creating welcoming environments for all, and we've heard this a few times in the public statements of senior ECB officials, and we've heard it through things like the South Asian Action Plan and Inspiring Generations, both of which are very worthy pieces. But as we discussed at the at the top of the show misguided or potentially don't go far enough. There will be a full-scale review. We understand that an advance of the new season about abusive crowd behavior. And there will also be measures put in place to ensure that professional cricket venues have accessible seating, food and beverage offering, including halal food, multi-faith rooms and alcohol-free zones. The the question I would ask at this point is how on earth grounds were not already mandated to to have this. Would you like to see those factors, for example, provision of halal, vegetarian food, uh, multi-faith rooms, alcohol-free zones. Would you like to see major match allocation being being contingent on those? It's, it's the easiest win. And
2: I can't defend some counties there. I know they've been told about these things in the past. I know full well that one of the things that was first mentioned to a county, I won't say which county, but a county, around being inclusive was as you walk through the door, the first sign you see was a picture of a bunch of lads drinking alcohol. And you go, well, that looks great to us, but you've already, a lot of people might just look through the window, see that and go, I don't want to go in there. And, and you've already lost part of the audience. So I think that's the, like you say, it's a bit of a, well, we're behind the eight ball there and and it's not an easy fix because you've still got to, you know, counties are still businesses and they've got to make money, but there's certainly money to be made doing it a different way. And it's just challenging it. And, and actually we'll probably make more money if you do it that way, because you have a better community, a bigger bigger audience, et cetera, a more diverse audience and wider connections.
1: No, I agree. I mean, th- this is the thing, isn't it? The ECB and others and the, the counties, are many of them will, will be probably taking baby steps on this because you know you look at the smaller counties that have fewer resources, generally speaking, and therefore EDI stuff generally is pretty far down the, the rung of things to deal with. So those with smaller budgets then you could understand if EDI had fallen you know wayside in, in that respect as well. But there are things that can be done which make the experience better and they're fairly, let's be honest, they're negligible changes to make you know making sure that you have diversity of offerings from a food and beverage point of view that you have somewhere in the stand which is alcohol free, which by the way I would always go into, particularly if I was taking my kids because I want to make sure that it's welcoming for my kids. but at the hundred. That wasn't available. It was available at Headingley if I go to a test match or a one-day international. At the 100, I booked into that same part of the stadium, assuming it was going to be alcohol-free, and it wasn't. You know, I know that there are prayer rooms at at Headingley. They were introduced when Pakistan hosted Australia in the neutral test match, but they were forced to do it because they were assuming that they were going to get tens of thousands of homegrown Pakistani supporters coming through the gates. You know, but these are easy wins to say, you know, we're welcoming. but. That doesn't then detract from the abuse that may well get hurled at them in the stadiums, which we know exists. So I mean, there are things that kind of say, as a venue, we're welcoming. The key, therefore, is then how do you actually make the environment on match day with other fans when you're interacting with other people? How do you make it welcoming or inclusive?
0: I'm quite interested in terms of this review, detection, enforcement, and sanctions. Are either of you from a research point of view or from a advisory? point of view going to be involved in this review and uh, what research has actually been done into crowd behavior at, at cricket matches
1: two questions in answer to in order i hope so and b i don't know i would desperately hope that we could be involved in these things because this is what we want to do we do the work in order to make a difference and i would like to think that we've got the specialism to do it is there any work out there i mean surely surely these grounds they must do spectator surveys and, and things like that but these are again what percentage of people had a nice day today what percentage of people did this and that it doesn't capture anything of, of my, in my view anything of use because it's just you need some personal kind of testimony to back up what's happened so this is a case of you send out your survey and said you know what if you'd like to have a chat with people if you're willing to be interviewed about your experience, if you know, then you know, contact this person or let's have researchers in the stadiums observing what's going on. Let's put them in the party stand at these, you know, major international venues and observe what's going on. Let's observe what the stewards are doing. Do the stewards feel like they've got any power whatsoever to challenge this behavior? Because you know, talking to my students who are, you know, on the side our stewards at Premier League football matches. And you say to them, have you have you seen racism, etc.? So yeah, absolutely. Do you do anything about it? No, because I don't want to get my head kicked in. Now, there's nothing to suggest that the stewards at a cricket ground are not having a dissimilar experience. You see the amount of abuse they get for taking away an inflatable ball for crying out loud. You know, what happens if they start reporting people for shouting abusive language at you know at the players or at other families across the other side of the stadiums? I just don't think we know. And that's what we need to understand. And there are a variety of ways in which we can do it.
2: There's Just with the stewards as well, like what is interesting, and I, I have to be careful because I'm not fully versed on this, but I do think that the, the, there was a noticeable decline in the uh, Black British communities and Asian communities' attendance when there were lots of examples of drums and other things being steel drums or other drums being taken into and being taken off them. So... The stewards do great work, and a lot of them, you know, I don't want to have a go at anybody, but there certainly seems to be they have the powers to remove that type of behaviour. But like I say, challenging, you know, 30 or 40
0: quite drunk men (laughs) might be a bit more challenging than than removing an instrument. So we've talked about the proposals in terms of finding out where we are and where we've been. Now we're coming on to the final stages, the, the last section. Thomas Fletcher, you were talking about budgets and their impact on EDI. I remember chatting to Ebony Rainford Brent when I went down to an ace session and we were talking about the concept of inclusion as an essential rather than as a nice to have. I don't know if you share my potential fear that this might be seen as as a nice to have or or an add-on. Or are we are we past that? Are we past that because of the the national impact of what Azim Rafik and others have been talking about?
1: Well, I think my view on it is that it's an EDI, so Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Plan, because this is the ECB having a a real kind of introspective moment around the culture of cricket, not just about race and racism. So these will be objectives which will be around making sure that cricket is not just anti-racist, but actually it's also inclusive of all genders, sexualities, faith groups, but also disability, et cetera. Because from evidence that I've seen of say local leagues and cricket boards and their player surveys and whatnot, racism is an issue, but as is homophobia, as is sexism. And I think this is the ECB's way of probably accelerating plans around other protected characteristics as well. Now race is clearly part of it. And I think one of the things that often weakens action plans like this is that everything is couched within equality, diversity, and inclusion. And so there are very few targets related to race, few targets related to gender. And so it's like, oh, we did really well on gender, but actually we're still pretty poor on this, but we've put all of our eggs in the gender basket. And so we're okay. What needs to happen here is that we acknowledge that, you know what, race is an issue, but as are these other things, but they also intersect with one another. So again, the experiences of South Asian girls will be demonstrably different to the experiences of South Asian boys. And therefore, if you want to be inclusive of South Asian communities, there are gendered elements, there are class-based geographical issues as well that have to factor within this broad scope of EDI. I would love to see an anti-racism strategy or an anti-racism action plan. Absolutely. I think this is all part of those baby steps let's make sure that we get a game that is broadly inclusive, we'll keep revisiting and reviewing. And if problems kind of persist or emerge in that time, then you may well end up with task forces which are dealing with gender or homophobia or racism.
0: The statements of the the anti-racism plan might seem a little watered down in in that regard, but it is worth pointing out that this was a statement agreed between the ECB, all of the first-class counties, all of the national counties, the PCA and a number of other bodies as well, and I, it does seem that there's been a certain amount of negotiation going on, as you might, for example, as the communique from a summit. So one of the targets it does set is diversity at county board level and at national board level, and the relatively aggressive targets in the, the deadline for them is April 2022. You, in your report, Thomas Fletcher, advocated for some affirmative action in hiring processes do you, Tom Brown, do you Tom agree with that? Would you, for example, the Rooney rule is something you hear about a lot in sports administration. Would be that, would that be something that you would advocate for in, in, in the hiring of senior management at, at clubs?
2: In the boardroom, is different to everywhere else, and I think we need to be really clear on that because in the boardroom, you're there to represent the community. You're there to, to represent, whereas other jobs are potentially more performance-based. My problem with the Rooney rule is it can literally just be seen as a tick box exercise. We've, we've spoke to a, minor, a member of the minority community. We did our job and we're therefore we're inclusive. What we really should be doing to some degree is what we're trying to do is understand what are the specific barriers so that why aren't they applying for these jobs off their own bat and why aren't they getting these jobs anyway? And then once we've identified those barriers, put in specific interventions, as we just, Tom mentioned in the, in the last question, specific interventions that are designed to make an impact for that issue. That's where we have this sort of equality of opportunity or positive discrimination of opportunity. Say, right, this is specifically where the black British community needs support. This is specifically where the Asian community needs support and then Asian females and then black, you know, the intersectionality models where, you know, things all intertwine and you're not just, you know, we are white male. Straits, et cetera, and all the things that build us up to who we are. I think if you start having quota systems, we'll, we'll end up creating more problems than we're solving from being really honest, because I think you'll end up with a huge resentment. I think it was necessary in South Africa, because actually that's where the majority group were marginalized. I, the black community far outweighed the white community in South Africa, and therefore there needed to be a huge change in demographics in South Africa to make a difference. So quotas were probably Necessary. But even when you listen to, there was a brilliant interview with Nasser Hussein and Makarantini around the effects of being a quota player and how that affects you and how you're perceived and the perceptions around you. But having said that, it definitely did fast track, you know, the likes of now having Rabada, got a black captain who's just won the Rugby World Cup. There are some positives to it, but I think overall it creates more issues than it solves. But on the boardroom level, and the other thing about the boardroom level, and it was actually Tom who introduced me to this concept, but you actually have. On top of that, was trying to be, do your job as a board member, but you have the burden of representation as well. And you actually then have to sit in that boardroom and try and represent the community you represent, which is not easy, and adds an additional thing for you to do as a minority player that others, again, when you talk about white privilege, that's something I would never have to do, is represent the white community in a room I walk into.
1: And interestingly, more often than not, at that board level, those roles are implicit as well. So it's those ethnically diverse board members or it's the female board members who kind of take it upon themselves or make an assumption that they have to then be the champion of those groups of people. So people like them, even though it's never been communicated to them, it's not within their remit of joining the board, but they feel a degree of responsibility and they look around and they think, well, that's clearly what I'm here for. You know, that is my job, even though it's not, but that's clearly why I've been recruited. and part of that kind of quota system kind of mentality again, which is is really interesting. I'm not sure where I kind of stand on it fully because I've done work with board members in, in other sports, excellent people who will say to you, Tom, I know why I'm on this board. I'm excellent and I deserve to be here. But rest assured, I know that I'm here because I'm black or I'm brown or I'm a woman. I'm here because this board needs greater diversity. And that doesn't detract from how excellent I am, but at the same time, they don't feel there's still that kind of nagging sense of non-belonging. Where these targets fit in, they do become potentially problematic in that respect.
2: I was going to say real quick, I won't steal it because it is Tom's point, but I've I've heard him say this a few times. It's all about the experiences of those people on those boards as well. You can have 30% representation, 15, 40, whatever, but if they're still having a terrible time and they're still subject to abuse or discrimination, then... And we haven't solved any problems.
0: There isn't an an easy answer to to this question, because there is no doubt that some element of affirmative action can accelerate change. But of course, feeling like you don't belong for whatever reason is not going to help you perform. And, and moving on to performance of so part of your research, Tom Brown was talking about player pathways and talking about the performance levels shown by members of different groups and in terms of whether they get selected or or not, whether performance could explain the drop-off. Spoiler alert. No, it couldn't. The ECB have said that they wanted to introduce anonymized recruitment tools for at management level. I know they actually did this because I tried to apply for some for some of the jobs that they hired for the hundred, where your skills are plotted on a sort of skill matrix. Very similar. If you play football manager, you'll see you'll see that sort of skills diagram. That strikes me that that could be applied to to pro contract and and player performance, where you can take out some of the biases, perhaps. Essentially taking, uh, taking skilled players and almost taking their names off it like you might with a, with a CV search.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that will happen because I think where it's different when you're, uh, you're playing is the people who decide whether you get a contract or not, are, it's the subjective views of very few at the minute. So if you wanted a contract at a county, it would, you'd probably have to impress the skills coach that you represent, so your batting or bowling coach at the, at the uh, senior level, the head coach, and the director of cricket. And if you've got two out of three ticks, you're probably going to get a contract. To get a contract, you have to have played within the second 11, or most likely you play within the second 11, you play within the first 11. And it's at the moment, whether you get a contract or not, is how you fit into that environment from a performance basis and from what we're finding out now off the pitch stuff, you know, around character, which I could talk for days about with the the character stuff. But essentially, I don't think there can be an anonymous thing because it's not an application process. It's a very long trial, and effectively that trial starts from you know, whenever you enter the system to whenever you leave it, and there's no way you can make that anonymous, really.
1: Presumably, you know, if you take away, that, take away the trial, which is you know more often than not, where particularly young kids, they're invited to a trial. If they perform well on the night, then they get the nod. Some kids probably come with a little bit more leeway. In terms of their performance on the night, other kids who are more precarious—if they don't perform well on the night—that's them done. From your experience, do you think there is any evidence anywhere to suggest that if you just had a hundred people's stats, so innings, runs, average, balls bowled, maidens, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera, so they were anonymous. Do you think that from the statistics of say young South Asians who are coming through the system, if you took their stats alone? and you took away actually meeting somebody in person, do you think there would be more who are progressing up the ladder? Do you think there is actually that talent that just never get the chance?
2: There's definitely the talent. Like That's that's almost you know unquestionable. It's what we do with the talent when it's in the system and, and how much of an effect it has on their development. So a lot of it is, are they entering the system where they had enough talent to make it and we mess them up? Either that was the initial question. Or are they messing it up? And that's where I said initially I look too much you know to be really crude. What are they doing wrong and not are we doing wrong? With the anonymous stats stuff, there's you can do something with it, but it can't be a county age group because at county age group you don't have any comparative stats to draw from. Like they haven't they haven't all played the same level where you could say he averaged forty, she took fifty wickets. They're all in different clubs, different leagues. So county age group, no. Once you're in the county age group, you could potentially do that, but then there's always going to be the argument of which stats do we use? Like is averaging. 40 a true representation of your batting or if you average 35 but you played two or three match winning knocks is that better what you could do and, and maybe what will be better and like a sort of amalgamation of the two is you as part of the selection process you could have everyone's stats there and on, on match performances anonymous without names or pictures and then you could ask coaches to rank these stats and where you you, you would place them and then reveal the pictures to see who they were. Because yeah. that that might be a better way of doing it. Because ultimately, whilst there is the argument of sort of a money ball approach, and I think that will work or could work at the professional level, where there's a ton of data and it's all across the board, and you know exactly the standard they've been playing, and and the analysts are full-time mathematicians, effectively most of them are. I just think there could be a middle ground around academy or EPP or or even potentially contract level. But I think with contract it's so if you're a young 19-year-old and you're playing in the second level in a county, you know you're being watched and you're being, you know, your stats are being taken into account. When you get at the end of it, if you anonymise things in terms of the people, you're,
1: they're still going to know whose stats were who because they've been there. The problem is, I guess, is once you're in that system and you've met coaches, for instance, they've probably already formed a judgment and it's difficult to change people's perceptions, isn't it? I mean, I, you know, you'll have played with people who got opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And 90% of the people in that side are looking around going, why is that person here? Because they are utter rubbish. That kid was never the black kid. That kid was never the South Asian kid. That kid was always the kid that went to some nice private school somewhere. They would seem to be more resilient to the pitfalls of the system than than other groups.
0: The word you might hear there is that they've got, class or they've got it, whatever that, that it yeah, that character it might be. This is the bit I'm researching at the minute. And it's really winding me up <laughs> because we always
2: get quoted around, oh, you know, they've got that like, like you're saying something about you. They've got that X factor, that, that bit of character. The only thing that has been identified through the research that has an effect from a psychological point of view on professional performances and doing well from a batting point of view is resilience. And the only way we can, if you look at a a season, say you play 21 games in a season as a under 15, 16, you might only get one or two chances to demonstrate resilience from the match scenario, you know, going in at 40 for five or having to block out for a draw or bowler maiden at a certain point, etc. So if you miss out on that one or two chances, does that mean that you aren't resilient? No. Like, can we look further afield to, there was a brilliant example of a lad whose parents got stuck in India during COVID. And he's an 18-year-old and he had to stay behind and run the family business and train on an academy. He goes, that is a huge sign of resilience. And there was another one of a lad having to walk five miles to training with his kit on his back after school because his dad was a taxi driver and he couldn't get to the training. on t- And he'd always turn up a few minutes late because it was too short a time from school to walk to the place. And he got berated for being late. And I was like, well, I'd rather have him who's walked there than the lad who got a nice cushy lift from mum and dad who picked him up in a Bentley or something (laughs) in drone. I'm being very genuine and stereotypical there, but do you know what I mean? Like how do we mark and look at things that have been identified in research that actually have an effect on performance? Because at the moment, the selection process is very subjective.
0: I do a lot of commentary and covering of Indian men's cricket and the number of players in the current Indian men's setup who lost one or more parents very young is there's a book in there somewhere, but but there there's a huge variety of personal circumstance that is quite astonishing. To finish off, to try and analyze what we've just been talking about, there are three questions that I think we need to close on. Will the plan succeed? If the objectives are met, how much will it help? I.e., are these the right objectives? And what else would you like to have seen in this plan? And what more beyond this plan can the ECB and the and the counties do? And if we can just Yeah, a little quick thing from each of you on that, Then I think that's a very good place to finish. Tom Brown first. Will it succeed? Potentially. I mean, they've set deadlines and they've set targets, so we can
2: literally monitor if they're going to succeed or not from that point of view. Will it eradicate racism in the game? We have to wait and see. What I would like them to have done, this is more of a general, and it is slightly biased because both of us are researchers, but I would like the, the game as a whole or as a wider whole to... Consultate with research as much as possible because I found a lot, even through the time I've been doing so, I've been doing it for four years now. Even from when I started to where I am now, a lot's changed in that four years. It's going back to what's actually at the forefront of research. What are the people whose jobs it is to research these topics? What are they saying, and use them instead. I think cricket's got a very much of a "that's the way we do it" type of approach at the minute, and and that needs addressing and probably is what has led to to some of these issues over time.
1: Will it succeed? I don't think that we're really at a point where we should consider an endpoint to be able to say job done because I think that as Tom's saying there that what cricket needs to be is more agile to respond to challenges. So I think will it succeed? Probably in certain metrics at certain points but I don't think that it should ever be considered that this job is ever done. Because cricket always has to look at itself and and all sports have to look at themselves and constantly adapt.
0: The ECB's 12-point anti-racism plan, backed by a £25 million budget, is a start. But if English cricket is truly to remake itself into a game for everyone, it cannot do it alone. The final word goes to Thomas Fletcher.
1: What would I like to see? I'd like to see a focus on experience. Which comes back to the research angle because... I want to know the experiences of people who play the game and people who drop out of the game. You know, so why do they drop out? You know, is it because actually they, lo- they lost love of it? Is it because of other factors? But I want to see it focused on experience in the stadiums. I want to see experience of people on the coaching pathways. I want to know the experiences of young kids going through the system as opposed to just at a particular moment in time when we think there's a problem. This should just be built into the work that's being done. Do it properly.
0: You've been listening to Cricket Inside the Story. It was presented, produced, and edited by me, Knuckle Pandey. My guests were Tom Brown from Birmingham City University and Dr. Thomas Fletcher from Leeds Beckett University. The music is by Broke for Free and is available from the Free Music Archive. You can find more information in the show notes. If you like the show, give it a 5-star rating and review, share and subscribe so I can make more.